Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Galatians. I want to preach on the subject, the strongholds pulling down the classicus locus. Now, you need to learn some of that Latin. That, if you learn that kind of thing, it helps you to intimidate people. <laughs> pulling down the classicus locus strongholds of Calvinism. That word is Latin for uh, uh, the classical location meaning the most important uh, passage that uh, you would uh, have in defense of a doctrine and so on. But to turn, if you would, to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Galatians, chapter 1, come down to verse 6. Galatians 1, verse 6. It says, marvel that you are so, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto Another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Uh, let him be set aside for destruction. Uh, let his soul be damned to hell. When you begin to tamper with the gospel, that's very, very, very serious business. Look what Paul says in verse 9. As we said before, so I say now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. <laughs> well, we want to look at this uh, doctrine of Calvinism, uh, sometimes called Reformed Theology. And there's sort of a refinement of uh, Reformed theology called covenant theology. And uh, sometimes it's called Augustinianism, coming from the man named Augustine, uh, who was really the uh, founding father and the true father of Reformed theology. And it's very important now to get these dates in mind. Augustine died in 430 A.D. Uh, John Calvin died in 1564 A.D. So in round figures, Augustine lived about a thousand years uh, before John Calvin. But uh, Calvinism is sometimes called Augustinianism. Uh, sometimes it's called Reformed theology. Sometimes called Covenant theology. Uh, some call it Decretal theology. Got different names, but let's just, it's called Calvinism. <laughs> For all practical purposes, all these uh, terms really mean the same thing. And, uh, but we want to look at some of these things. Uh, reformed theology is probably the most common name today. And uh, that word reformed comes from the, uh, uh, from Aug uh, from the, uh, uh, the uh, Reformation period. Uh, the, uh, some of these uh, men that were Calvinists wanted to reform some of the doctrines of, uh, of the Catholic Church. And they felt that there was too much Catholicism in the Lutheran Church. So the term Reformed came from this attempt to uh, purge the Catholicism from the Lutheran Church and, the, of course, the uh, Protestant churches. And, um, but Augustine now, he died in 430 A.D. Keep these dates in mind. It's very important. Uh, it's very important to know the dates. You need to know the chronology of history. Uh, that way you see cause and effect. And uh, so it's very important to get dates in mind, get these things fixed in your mind so that you can... Uh, see the cause and effect of, of the various events. But uh, Augustine is the true father of Reformed theology. He's also really the father of Catholic theology. Augustine was a Roman Catholic bishop. And the older he got, the more hardened he became in his Catholicism. But uh, it's remarkable how men can draw theology from such men, but uh, some have. And then the, the modern father of Reformed theology is a man named Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, and he died in 1531. You have what they call the three mainline reformers, men that led the Protestant Reformation in the, uh, in the early uh, 16th century. Uh, of course, Martin Luther would be the father of the Protestant Reformation. He died in 1546. Uh, Zwingli died in 1531, and Calvin died in 1564. It's very important to keep these dates in mind so you can see the, uh, this whole, uh, the, uh, the cause and effect of these events. And then the, uh, sometimes Calvinism today identifies what they call uh, the five doctrines of grace. When you hear that term, that's, uh, that's Calvinism. That's Reformed theology. And so uh, Reformed theology in many ways builds this whole system around their doctrine of salvation. 
And so when you look at the five doctrines of grace, it's really, it really touches on their doctrine of salvation, uh, how you get saved. And uh, then they have an acrostic, and uh, this is a, uh, they take these five doctrines, they take the first letter of each doctrine, and they come up with the word tulip, T-U-L-I-P, the flower. And uh, so this is meant to be sort of a, 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 we call it an acrostic, but sort of a memory device. Uh, showing you how to, uh, some giving you some tactic, some device to uh, uh, how to remember these five, what they call these five doctrines of grace. Now, if you study the history of Calvinism, uh, these five doctrines of grace, uh, every one of these five doctrines of grace, brother, uh, plus many other points of Calvinism, are drawn from pagan theology. Uh, Reformed theology is a synthesis between Augustinian Christianity and pagan theology, pagan philosophy, pagan doctrines. And every one of these doctrines now, what we call the, uh, that make up the tulip, uh, these are all drawn from pagan theology. I trust to help, help us to see that as we go along. But uh, in this acrostic, the tulip, the T stands for total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. The I stands for irresistible grace, and the P for perseverance of the saints. <laughs> uh, for example, uh, the, what you might call the cornerstone or the archstone or the keystone of Calvinist theology is called the sovereignty of God. And uh, the organizing and directing doctrine of the whole system is, uh, is what they would call the sovereignty of God. Well, it's interesting that that was the keystone, the main doctrine, the arch doctrine uh, of the Gnostics, these pagans. Uh, all these, uh, these pagan systems of the ancient world, uh, they call it sometimes uh, some would be, uh, one would be Neoplatonism, uh, some would be Gnosticism or Manichaeanism, uh, Stoicism. Uh, these were doctrines that were contemporary with the Apostolic Fathers. These systems were in existence at the time of the writing of the New Testament. And all these systems were, uh, were of course, uh, very pagan, unbiblical, unscriptural, but all these systems wanted to synthesize and make a one-world religion. And so they relied very heavily on the Bible and used the scriptures uh, to uh, bring uh, Christianity into the fold of pagan theology, pagan religion. So this is where I, so Augustine got his doctrines from uh, these pagan doctrines, these pagan philosophies. And uh, I, I listed some, there were others, but these are the main doctrines. All these systems uh, use the Bible, use Scripture, all attempted to uh, synthesize uh, Christianity into a one-world religion. Gnosticism was probably the first great threat to the New Testament church. And uh, so uh, these men are going to do, uh, these uh, Augustines are going to draw very heavily on these pagan systems. And uh, we could uh, get into all the reasons why we don't need to, but uh, uh, this is exactly what's happened. He's going to draw very heavily on these, uh, on these uh, systems uh, to develop what we call his five doctrines of grace, all right? Now, it's interesting, if you listen carefully uh, to the tulip, to these five doctrines, there's no mention of faith. Faith is not mentioned one time in the Calvinistic system as far as, these, as, far as the tulip is concerned. About 150 times, perhaps maybe closer to 200 times, the New Testament says that we're saved by faith through grace. <laughs> we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And uh, somewhere between 150 and 200 times, uh, we're told that we're saved by faith. <laughs> we're saved by faith. And I think it's fascinating that this whole system does not mention faith one time in the, in the tulip. Now, did you know, and most people don't know this, those that really uh, know a lot about Calvin do not realize that uh, Calvinism, not all Calvinists, Calvin himself, by the way, did not teach this. Some of these men today have even gone beyond Calvinism. That's why they call them hyper-Calvinism, because they, don't, uh, they teach things that Calvin himself didn't believe. I believe Calvin believed in, in, in an unlimited atonement. If you read his commentary on Isaiah... Uh, uh, chapter uh, 53, verse 12, he talks about uh, universal salvation, uh, that Christ died for all men. Uh, but uh, many Calvinists today uh, teach this idea of what they call limited atonement, that uh, Christ died for the elect only, and that the great majority of people, uh, God uh, uh, created them, 
uh, to send them to hell. They call that the doctrine of reprobation, that God creates most people, uh, creates, uh, gives the uh, authors the life of babies, offers, authors uh, the life of everyone, and, but the majority will be sent to hell. God predestinates them before they were ever born, before creation. Uh, God predestinates them to go to hell. That's called the doctrine of reprobation. Now, by the way, I think that's a blasphemy on the character of God. <laughs> it's a great, uh, my God is a God of love. Uh, the central theme of the Bible is the love of God, not the sovereignty of God. Uh, that's a pagan emphasis. <laughs> that's not a New Testament, uh, New Testament emphasis. But um, let's look at these, uh, let's look at these, um, some of these other things. Augustine changed his theology for the first 25 years of his life. He was orthodox in his teaching. Then he began to debate what they call the Pelagians and, uh, and the Donatists. The Donatists were sort of proto-Baptists. You might say they were our Baptist forefathers in one sense. Well, Augustine began to debate these men. and He realized that he was losing, his, uh, losing the debate. And so he switched to uh, these pagan theologies. That's basically what's happened and the reason why he changed his philosophy. And uh, this change came about after 412 A.D. So you don't get any of the Calvinistic interpretations of the writings of Paul until the 5th century. Isn't that odd? Nobody ever interpreted the way the, uh, the Calvinists do until after 412 A.D. Now we believe that the New Testament canon was closed. We believe that John wrote the book of the Revelation. Uh, somewhere around 95 A.D., and let's just say in round figures, the New Testament canon was closed by 100 A.D. After 100 A.D., there were no New Testament, no more Bible books written. They were all written by that time. And it's interesting that God did not give Augustine these great truths until 300 years after the canon was closed. Why would God wait 300 years to give the man the great, the great truths of salvation? <laughs> you ever think about that? By the way, it was the Gnostics. They were the first ones to interpret Romans 9 as predestination to salvation. You know, the, nobody ever taught that until the Gnostics taught it. And Augustine's going to come along after 412, a, uh, 412 A.D. and teach that Romans 9 teaches that men are predestinated to salvation before the creation and before they were ever born. Uh, why would God wait 300 years <laughs> to give the great doctrine of salvation to a man. Now, I think Augustine was a heretic. Uh, we would call him a heresiarch. He believed uh, in infant baptism. He believed that if you baptize an infant, that that water would regenerate them, would wash away their sins and make them a member of the Catholic Church. Uh, that's another gospel. The Bible doesn't teach uh, baptismal regeneration, that God regenerates you when you baptize someone. You get baptized because you are saved and not to get saved. Well, anyhow, these are some of the things that uh, Augustine taught. And uh, the first, uh, Augustine uh, first uh, gave us this doctrine of uh, predestination to salvation before creation, before your birth, in 416 A.D. And if you search church history, and you read the writings of the church fathers, nobody ever taught, except the pagans, nobody ever taught this idea that people are predestinated to salvation before they're born or predestinated to hell before they're born. Nobody teaches that until Augustine comes along as far as a professing Christian. Nobody teaches predestination to salvation before birth or creation before Augustine, and he's going to write a letter in 416 A.D. to a Catholic bishop. Uh, this Catholic bishop, his name is Paulinus, and he's from the city of Nola in Italy. And for the first time in history, we see a Christian writing that uh, people are predestination to salvation before they're ever born, before creation. Again, uh, we believe the canon was closed in 300 A.D. So no professing Christian writes teaching this idea that men are predestinated to salvation <laughs> before birth, before creation, until Augustine does in 416 A.D. And by the way, all the church fathers, the sound, orthodox, Bible-believing church fathers, they all believe that that was a heresy. That it was a heresy to teach that men are predestinated to salvation before they're born. 
And Augustine now is going to change all that. It's impossible to exaggerate the influence of Augustine. His teaching dominated the Catholic Church and the Christian world for about a thousand years. Uh, but um, let's look at the tulip in a little more detail. All right. <laughs> Total depravity. Now, for many, many years, I call myself a two-point Calvinist. Uh, today, I reject all five points. I think all five points of Calvinism, all these five doctrines of grace, uh, are born in pagan theology, pagan doctrine. But I used to think, well, total depravity, well, that means, means man's basically evil. Well, I believe man's basically evil. <laughs> all right. And then it talked about that the, the fifth point, the perseverance of the, uh, of the saints. Uh, they talk about, well, you can't lose your salvation. Well, I didn't think you could lose your salvation. So if I believe in total depravity and the perseverance of the saints, then I must be a two-point Calvinist. But uh, that's not what they mean. When you study the Catholic theologians, they don't, when they say total depravity, they mean total inability. Uh, man is a spiritual corpse. And uh, so uh, man can't respond to God. God's got to regenerate him first. And then so God can then give him faith so he can get saved. <laughs> What they're really saying is you don't need faith to be regenerated. That's heresy. <laughs> uh, I'm saved by, uh, I, when, when uh, uh, Paul talked to the Philippian jailer, he said, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. No, uh, man, man has, uh, has ability to respond. By the way, the gospel has power. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God. When a man hears the word of God and hears the gospel, that gospel wakes him up from that spiritual deadness. There's a power in that gospel. And they would say, oh no, man is so spiritually dead, he's just a corpse, and uh, he can't ever respond to God in any way. God's got to regenerate him first. Then after God regenerates him, then God will give him faith. Faith is a gift. Uh, no man has a gift, and no man has the ability just to hear the gospel and God's saved. God's got to give him the gift of faith. Word of God doesn't teach that either. <laughs> and then after God gives him faith, then he gets saved. No, uh, the, there's power in the gospel. And uh, God, uh, faith cometh by hearing, hearing about hearing the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God. There's power in that gospel to awaken that old sinner. <laughs> and when he... Uh, uh, when the gospel wakes him up, then he can, he has the, God will help, he, and he puts his faith in Christ, he gets saved. All right. But they, total, total depravity. Now they teach, the Calvinists teach that when a man uh, is born in sin, that uh, he loses his free will. Then they would say, well, now he does have the uh, free will to sin, he doesn't have the free will to do good. Well, if you got free will, you got free will, don't you? But uh, anyhow, by the way, this free will is a wonderful, sacred gift that God has given to men. When you deny free will, that's a very, to me, a very serious her uh, heresy. All the founding fathers for the first 300 years of the church believed in free will. In fact, those early church fathers, they coined the term free will. And they believed uh, that uh, uh, to deny free will was a heresy. <laughs> uh, Sometimes, sometimes you hear the word predestination. Uh, you have what they call absolute predestination. Sometimes they call it determinism. That God controls everything that comes to pass. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, one of the favorite theologians of the Calvinists, says that uh, God, every thought that comes into your mind, God puts that there. Every feeling you have, God puts that there. Uh, every intuition that you have, God puts that there. That's making God the author of sin, isn't it? If a murder comes into my mind, God put that there. They call that absolute determinism or absolute predestination. Augustine taught that uh, when the march winds blow, that, the, uh, that God will determine where that uh, loose leaf will land. Uh, every particle of dust that flies into the air, God controls that. And wherever that particle of dust lands, God controls that. Now, I believe that God has what we call a self-limiting providence. For example, God's not the author of sin. He says, uh, when you sin, don't blame God. <laughs> God doesn't put sin in your heart, doesn't put sin in your mind. God doesn't cause anyone to sin. 
The Word of God is very clear on that. But if you, uh, they, they call this determinism, absolute determinism, that God determines or God predestinates or foreordains everything that comes to pass, even your thought life, uh, everything you do. If you go out and get falling down drunk, then God put that thirst for alcohol in your uh, mind or your heart. Every, uh, this makes God the author of sin. Again, that's blasphemy. God's providence is self-limiting. God will give you the liberty to go out and do what you want to do. God doesn't force anybody to do anything. But um, anyhow, that's what they mean by total depravity. Now, it's very interesting in church history. When I talk about the church fathers, we believe that uh, the apostle John died somewhere around 95 A.D., sometime in that time period, about 100 years after the, about 100 A.D. Now, John the apostle uh, pastored over in Asia Minor, and he had a disciple by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp sat at the feet of the apostle John and taught John, and taught, uh, John taught Polycarp. Well, one of the friends and students of Polycarp was a man named Irenaeus. And uh, these men, uh, by the way, all of them believed in free will. John evidently taught Polycarp free will. Polycarp evidently taught Irenaeus free will. And all the others that Irenaeus taught believed in free will. Nobody believed in uh, this idea of uh, man being uh, totally, having total inability uh, for the first 300 years of the church. Everybody everywhere taught free will. Every church father. In fact, all these church fathers, they even coined that term. And this idea that man was total, totally unable, unable, uh, was considered to be a heresy. This is a precious, precious gift, this is free will. That means that God is a God of free will. We're made in the image of God. God gave us free will. By the way, the most powerful, compelling argument for free will is how we're, we're commanded to love God. Is God going to make us love him? What kind of love is that? <laughs> if he just created robots with no will. Uh, so I think the argument that, that God commands us to love him is the most powerful argument for free will. God is not interested in a robot. God's not interested in mechanics. He wants us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to do that, we've got to have a free will. God will let men sin, let men fail, do anything. But he wants men to love him. And I think that's the most powerful argument for free will. But uh, the, uh, the man, uh, I'm trying to find a quote. Determinism, this idea that God determines absolutely everything that comes to pass. Where a, a loose leaf would settle on the ground, where a spark, uh, where, a, uh, where a particle of dust would a locate, uh, that's called determinism. It's called absolute determinism. And uh, among the, uh, the early church fathers, they said that determinism was the, de was the detestable Manichaean heresy. <laughs> they thought it's a heresy for a man to teach that God determines absolutely everything that happens. No, God has a limiting providence a self-limiting providence. God's in control. God does all things well. God's purpose is going to be accomplished. Uh, God's, uh, God's uh, purpose will be fulfilled regardless of what men do. <laughs> men can sin and fail, and in the end, God's purpose will be completed. But uh, this is, uh, this is uh, very, very serious here. Of course, the Word of God is full of free will. All these commands and warnings that were given in the Scriptures, Deuteronomy 28, God's... Uh, uh, promises to bless Israel, uh, Israel if they obey. Uh, God promises to curse Israel if they disobey. Now uh, that sounds a lot like free will, does it not? All the warnings in the Bible and the commands in the Bible. Uh, some Calvinists teach that even though God commands you to do something, even though you can't do it, God still holds you accountable. Uh, that's silly. That's, that's crazy talk, is it not? God's not going to ask you to do something that you can't do. But uh, once you adopt this system, you've got to sort of backhoe and adjust and patch and, uh, and pull and twist and shoehorn your, your theology into, this, into the Bible. And that's basically what happens. The Calvinists often have to redefine terms that have been clearly defined. Uh, they've got to readjust and recalculate and, uh, and so on. 
It's interesting, by the way, when, uh, when a Calvinist challenges you, they never deal with you from the standpoint of uh, hard exegesis. Watch them. They're philosophical theologians. <laughs> They're not interested in the, uh, in the intense or rigorous exegesis of Scripture. Just notice that the next time that you uh, read, uh, re- read a book by a Calvinist. And that's a general statement, okay? There may be some exceptions to that. But as a rule, they don't uh, defend themselves with, exege- with hard exegesis. Exegesis means you're trying to determine what the Scripture means. When we go to the Bible, we try to determine what the intent of the Holy Spirit is. What does the Holy Spirit mean by a passage? And so when you study the grammar of a passage and the historical background and who the book was written to and so on, they call that exegesis. Uh, if you try to impose your philosophy on a, on, a, on a passage of Scripture, by the way, all of us do that if we're not careful. It's very easy to have preconceived, uh, preconceived notions and impose that on the Bible. So we've got to be, all of us have to be very careful about that. They call that, uh, they call that eisegesis, where you impose your theology on, the, on a passage of Scripture. Uh, be, uh, we, uh, we're, we're to exegete the Scripture. We're trying to determine what the Holy Spirit in, intends by a passage. We don't go to the Bible trying to find our doctrine there. We go to find out what the Holy Spirit intends. But uh, anyhow, free will. This is a wonderful and noble, noble gift. Uh, whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. That suggests free will, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, turn in your Bibles over to uh, John seven seventeen, the Gospel of John seven seventeen. We could go through the word. Of, the word of God is just replete. There's a tremendous undercurrent all through the Bible of free will. But there's many, many direct statements. Look at John 7, 17. If any man will to do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether he be of God or whether I speak of myself. Again, now this is just typical. All through the Word of God, we see commands to exercise our will and so on. Well, the Word of God is quite clear. Free will is a precious, is a precious doctrine. In the tulip, the next, uh, the 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 U is unconditional election. Now that election means to choose, and so they teach now that uh, God chooses you, and there's no explanation why God very arbitrarily chooses you to salvation. There's no conditions. God doesn't choose you to salvation because you're a good person, you do good works, you got a good attitude. There's nothing about you that. Uh, causes God to elect you, to choose you for salvation. It's unconditional. It's all, uh, no matter what happens, God will choose you, whether you want to be chosen or not in one sense. But they call that unconditional election. And uh, the idea here is that, uh, that um, some, some have called this the heart of Calvinism. Uh, some have called it the touchstone of the Reformed faith, unconditional election. That God simply arbitrarily chooses you uh, for salvation. And there's no explanation as to why. And if you were to ask a Calvinist, he would say, well, that's a great mystery of God. Uh, Calvin himself would say, you've got no business looking into these kinds of mysteries. Uh, that's a very carnal thing, is try to look into these things. So uh, that's always their answer when they can't ask a question. Well, that's a great mystery of God now. And uh, that's, uh, that's none of our business. We shouldn't be concerning ourselves with things like that. But... Um, Anyhow, turn in your Bibles, if you would, quickly to Psalm 69. Unconditional election. That God arbitrarily now, without any reason, any cause, chooses some people to salvation. Those he chooses to salvation are called the elect. Uh, Those he chooses to send to hell, those he chooses to damn for eternity, uh, those, are, uh, those are called the non-elect. And that doctrine is called reprobation, where God predestinates people to go to hell. Now, sometimes they like to use euphemi- uh, euphemistic language. They say, no, God doesn't really uh, d- uh, choose people to go to hell. He just passes over the non-elect. I don't know that I see any difference after all is said and done. Do you? <laughs> but uh, anyhow... So uh, the idea here is that man doesn't, man doesn't uh, 
that God predestinates a minority of people to go to heaven and uh, predestinates the majority of people to die in their sin and go to hell. They call that reprobation. Let me show you something. I want you to think about this. Turn to Psalm 69, if you would. And come down to verse 28. Psalm 69, verse 28. The Word of God talks about the book of life. It's a very interesting concept. You ought to do some research on this. In Psalm uh, 69, the writer makes a very interesting point. Psalm 69, verse 28. It says, Thy God, I'm sorry, I'm a 68, 69, 28. Is that what I said? 69, 28. (laughs) It says, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. About uh, five, six, seven times, the Word of God talks about being blotted out of the book of life. And I believe that the book of life is a record of all of those who are born into the world. Here, David, or the writer of the Psalm, says this is the book of the living. I believe everyone that is born is placed in the book of life. And then if you die unregenerate, die in your sin, then your name is blotted out of that book. I think this is a very powerful, compelling argument that men are not uh, predestinated to hell. Uh, Everybody uh, who's born is placed in the book of life. Now, in that ancient world, you would know what that meant. In 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 many of those cities in the ancient world, when you were a citizen of a town, for example, Sardis, talks about the book of life and so on. Uh, If you were born in those towns, they would put you in, in a register. So every citizen of Sardis or Athens, for example, uh, were in this book of life of all the citizens. When you died, they took your name out of that book. And so in the ancient world, many people be more, would understand more of this concept of the book of life and being registered. And then when you died, your name would be taken out. And so I think what happens is that uh, I think everybody, when Christ died on Calvary, he died for the whole world. He died for every man. And that every man uh, would, uh, can be saved if he put his faith and trust in Christ. Whosoever will <laughs> may come. And so I think when a man dies, God blots his name out of that book. If you go to the white throne over in the book of the Revelation, it talks about the, uh, being blotted out of the book of life there. I believe with that great white throne, all those who appear there, their names have been blotted out of that book uh, because they died in their sin unregenerate. The Word of God tells us that uh, hell was created for the devil and his angels. It doesn't say it was created for the non-elect. If God had uh, predestinated the non-elect, he made a place for them. Would he not? I think, as far as the logic of this. The, uh, there in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, we won't go there, don't have time, but if you go to Luke chapter 10, verse 20, uh, the, uh, remember when the... Uh, the the men of God, these people came back from a missionary trip, you might say, and they were boasting. Even the devils are subject to unto us. <laughs> We've done many wonderful works. We've done some wonderful things. And even the, even the, uh, every, uh, the devils are subject to unto us. And Christ said, uh, don't be glorying this, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then Christ made a statement earlier. He says, you know, I saw Satan fall from heaven. I saw Satan lose his salvation. And later on, uh, we know that uh, Satan was cast out of heaven. Now, I, I'm just speculating now. I'm, don't, don't uh, just uh, you think about it. Is it that did God allow Satan to stay in heaven? That possibly he might be able to uh, re- redeem? I don't know. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. He seems to be saying, I saw Satan lose his salvation. Now, we don't know when that might have been, but we know, he, of course, he lost his salvation. But um, I think this, the Word of God is teaching something very important here. I think it's a possibility that everybody that's born is born into the book of the living, the book of life, because when Christ died on Calvary, he died for every man, and he wanted uh, salvation uh, uh, made possible for everyone. Well, you uh, study it for yourself and see what you think, all right? But um, 
Then limited atonement, where Christ died for the elect only. 110 times in the Bible it says that uh, whosoever will may come. You don't need to redefine that. You don't need to, uh, for God uh, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, some Calvinists say, no, God didn't love the world. He, that word world means elect. Well, uh, the, the Greek word there, cosmos, that simply means the world, everybody. <laughs> when Christ died on the cross, he died for everyone. First uh, 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 Timothy 4.10, Christ, uh, he's a savior of every man, even those that, uh, that believe and so on. Uh, the uh, Christ, uh, the First uh, John two two, he died for not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole. All through the Word of God, the Word of God clearly teaches that Christ died on Calvary for everyone. We call that the unlimited atonement. The Calvinists call it the limited atonement. Christ, uh, his his salvation was limited uh, to the elect. Those he died for, he didn't die for everybody. He just died for the elect only. Then you have irresistible grace. This is grace that cannot be resisted. I think it's really saying that God saves you in one sense whether you want to be saved or not. And they say, well, uh, God works behind the scenes. Uh, God changes your will and changes your attitude and God makes you want to get saved. Well, that's irresistible. You can't resist the grace of God. No, God doesn't make anybody get saved. To me, that's the, to say that God works behind the scenes and God changes your attitudes and so on, they the theologians call that compatibilism, that God makes your will compatible with the will of God. Well, I see no difference between that and hard determinism. What's the difference? If you don't want to get God working behind the scenes, to me that's, a, by the way, there's no scriptural basis for that whatsoever. That's why I say they've got to make it up. They've got to uh, redefine terms and reshape theology and uh, give uh, new interpretations and different interpretations for uh, passages of scripture that have, have had a long, solid Interpretation. They've got to, to revise everything in many ways. All right. But over and over again, the Word of God talks about resisting the will of God. You do always resist the Word of God. Now, what Stephen told them <laughs> there in Acts uh, 7.51, uh, we see the Pharisees resisting the Word of God. In fact, I've resisted the Word of God. I've resisted the grace of God every now and then myself. How about you? <laughs> All of us have, have we not, <laughs> to say that God's grace is irresistible. God's grace is clearly resistible. When Christ wept over Jerusalem, that I would have gathered you as a hymn would gather her checks, but ye would not. <laughs> uh, men clearly resisted the will of God. So that's the irresistible grace. By the way, God says in several places there in Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse, uh, or chapter 33, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Did you know these people teach, many times these people teach this idea that God uh, glories in sending people to hell? That God takes great pleasure in sending people to hell. Now listen, I don't mean to be, I hope I'm not being unkind. I don't mean to be unkind, okay? If you're a Calvinist here, I want you to know that uh, we're not talking about anybody's spirituality or their salvation. Uh, I want to be kind and loving. But I'm just trying to tell you what these people teach. And to me, uh, many of these things border on blasphemy. To say that God would create a little baby to send it to hell. Of course, they believe that everything that happens did you read where Hamas was uh, beheading babies and uh, putting babies into ovens to be roasted alive? Well, these hard Calvinists, they would tell you, well, that's, that's, that God did that. God put that thought into the heads of the Hamas. Listen, that's blasphemy. That's not the God. I, my God is the God of love. <laughs> he wants everybody to be saved. All right. And, uh, but anyhow, the, uh, then the perseverance of the saints... By the way, some of these doctrines were, were not introduced. Uh, the doctrine of predestination to salvation before birth of creation was introduced by Augustine in 416 A.D. In 422 A.D., he taught us the gift of perseverance, uh, that uh, God gives you the gift of perseverance. He was trying to explain why all these infants, the way they live, they live like the devil. These infants that got baptized, they lived, like, uh, they lived very wicked lives. So Augustine was trying to plan, was trying to teach something that would explain why these baptized infants didn't always live like they were saved, why they were regenerate. So he came up with the idea of perseverance of the saints. And he didn't give us that doctrine until 422 A.D. Now why would God wait 300 years to give us some of these great truths? 
All right. And so uh, you can see why many of these uh, Calvinists, by the way, would have a terrible struggle with assurance of salvation. Uh, Calvin taught the idea of, of what we call a fading faith. Uh, you can have a faith, but it's not real faith. He called it an inferior operation of the Holy Spirit. You may just think you're saved. Some of the non-elect, some of those that are reprobate, may uh, feel like they're saved. He even said you can have that feeling. You can deceive by your feelings. He called it a fading faith or a temporary faith. And the faith you have, that you have was given to you by an, in, an inferior operation of the Holy Spirit. You understand why some of these Calvinists have terrible struggle, a terrible struggle over assurance? How in the world could you have assurance with that kind of thinking, say? And uh, the, uh, by the way, many of these Calvinists had tremendous problems with, over assurance of their salvation. How do you really know if you're among the elect? Uh, Calvin was often, often inconsistent. He said, well, you just have to go by holy light. You know, I'll be honest, sometimes my life was not as holy as I ought to be. I could see where I might have real doubts about my, 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 about my salvation. Uh, A.A. Hodge, one of the, uh, covenant, the covenant theologians, and one of those theologians at the old Princeton back in the 19th century, said, well, the way you find assurance of your salvation is a, is a patient continuance in well-doing. So you really go by your works. Over in Matthew 7, what are those, uh, those people telling? Lord, we've done many wonderful works. Depart from me, I never knew you. You never saved in the first place. I don't care how many wonderful works. You better watch out trying to use these works as a, as a, as a gauge of assurance. <laughs> Sometimes our works aren't always uh, what they ought to be. You understand why uh, they, they called it, by the way, uh, the, the term that the Puritan Jews was, and, and the theologians, the Calvinist theologians, was that they called it predestinarian melancholia. So many of these Calvinists had such, uh, got so depressed and so uncertain about their salvation uh, they called it predestinarian melancholia. Asa Hell Nettleton, the great evangelist, the great the Presbyterian evangelist, he had terrible doubts over his salvation. I heard, saw uh, R.C. Sproul made a statement where he had a real uh, struggle over his eternal security and so on. R.C. Sproul, uh, Bill, uh, John Piper, these are some of the most, uh, John MacArthur, uh, these are some of the leading uh, uh, propagandists for Calvinism today. And, uh, but it's, uh, but the, some of these people have a, have a terrible struggle over assurance of their salvation. Well, so, uh, by the way, assurance is very clear. Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did you call on the Lord sincerely and ask him to save you? Then you're saved. Otherwise, you're making God a liar, are you not? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you have the Son, you have light. If you put your trust in Jesus and you meant it, you were sincere, then you're saved. Don't go by your feelings. Satan will play with your feelings. It's Romans 10, 13. It's just very simple. If you're struggling over that, just, just even today, there in the pew, Lord, I, I trust you as my Savior. I'm going to take, your, take you at your word. Don't make these things more complicated than what they are. All right, now I'm... I'm going to try to move along very quickly here. All right. We're finally going to get to these strongholds. Uh, John White, one of the leading Calvinists, says there's three, three passages of scriptures that are strongholds. And uh, they like to impress you, so he used a little Latin there, this, this classicus locus, all right? The classical location of these great chapters that defend Calvinism, that teach Calvinism. The first one was John chapter 6. And then Romans 9, then Ephesians chapter 1. They actually like to include part of Romans uh, chapter 8. But real quickly, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, if you would. John 6, 37 through 45, in verse 16. Here are the Calvinists now. They find a limited atonement in this passage, irresistible grace, predestination to salvation. They particularly like verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Well, they like to say, well, that's predestination of salvation, that God predestined and chose a lot of people for salvation and he gave them to Christ. Uh, no, God, uh, God uh, four times in John 6, Christ, or uh, in, in the Gospel of John, Christ talks about the Father sending him. 
Uh, Paul talks about the gospel of God. The gospel originates in the loving heart of God. God the Father is the architect of salvation. And out of his great heart of love and compassion, he gives us the gospel. He he loved men. (laughs) So we get the gospel from God the Father. And he sends the Son. What the, the God the Psalm twenty four verse one, uh, that for uh, all the all the earth belongs to the Lord and all that are therein and them that are therein and and the fullness thereof and so on. They're, God God the Father is the owner of everything. So all these souls that they come in one sense comes from God the Father because He's the one that gave that gave the grace. Uh, he's the one that gave the gospel. He's the architect of salvation. So everything, uh, everything on this earth, the fullness thereof, and all them that dwell therein belong to God the Father in one sense. All the, the fullness of the earth belongs to God the Father. And it's simply saying that all these converts in one sense are because of God the Father, because of his great love and his great grace. He's the architect of salvation. And so he sends his son uh, as, as to, uh, to offer salvation to die, on, to die on the cross and so on. But anyhow, the, uh, if you're, uh, Linsky, the old commentator, says that God gives men to Jesus by, by drawing men to Jesus. Uh, if you read through this chapter, you won't take the time, but uh, in verse 37, it says, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Verse 640, uh, everyone, uh, 45, and 40, 45 and 47, all are taught of God. And then if you go over to John 12, 32, John 12, 32 is a good answer to all these. You've got to read these things in their context. Context, 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 context is king. Amen? Uh, In uh, John 12, verse 32, let me get there. John 12, 32. And if I be lifted up, we'll draw who? All men. This answers John 6, 44. The word of God is quite clear. God wants everybody to be saved. He's going to, he wants to teach everybody. And as uh, the commentator Linsky said, he uses Jesus to draw men to Jesus. And look at the cross and look at Calvary that draws the sinner. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And then you come over to, they like Romans 8 and 9, 8. Come to verse 8, verse 27. Romans 8, 27. Then read through 30. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. Then eight twenty eight For all things work together for good. And then the Lord uh, begins to uh, look at the word. Uh, verse 28 says, uh, Who are called according to his purpose. In verse 29, verse 1, see the word for? That's a connected <laughs> It's connecting verses 28, 29, and 30. And in those passages, the, uh, this is the great assurance, greatest assurance passage in all the Word of God. The Lord is dealing with assurance here. He says, you've been called, and my purpose is to save you. I invited you. Now, not everybody that uh, he invites comes. Many are invited, but few are chosen. He chooses all those who put their faith in him and trust him as their Savior. That's what the Word of God's talking about. Now, here's this great chapter of assurance. Here's my purpose. <laughs> my purpose was to call you. I invited you, and you, you answered my call. By exercising your will, you put your faith in me, and then I, I saved you. And by the way, he tells us here that he predestinated us to be conformed to his image. Predestination has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with uh, to be Christ wants us to make us like, he wants to make us like Jesus. We're predestinated to be like him. We're predestinated to be adopted. And so here's this magnificent chapter on assurance. I got you saved. I, uh, I've justified you. And now I'm going to glorify you. That word, just put the word adoption there. When we get saved, if you get saved today, he uh, glorifies your bodily. You go to heaven and you're in one sense seated in heavenly places with him. But at the rapture, our bodies will be glorified. Our old bodies will be taken out of the ground and we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to be placed as sons. We call that adoption. Uh, He's going to be the firstborn of many sons. We're all going to be like him. He's going to be the firstborn. We're going to be like Jesus. 
And uh, that's his purpose. That's his plan, that we're all going to be adopted. We're going to be glorified. And so the Word of God is saying God's purpose is that we're all going to be adopted. We're going to be placed as sons of God. We're going to be glorified. And once uh, this old earth is waiting for the revelation of the sons, waiting for the sons to be glorified, to be adopted. And at that rapture, when you and I, when our old bodies are glorified and we're like Jesus, we're like the firstborn, then uh, this old earth will be liberated. And all the evils uh, of this, uh, the, 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 the earth will be delivered from its bondage. But the earth is now waiting, is groaning in one sense, suffering, uh, waiting for us to be revealed as sons, waiting for us to be adopted. <laughs> one theologian said this, and I think it's a tremendous statement. He said, adoption is the crown and glory of the redemptive process. It's the apex of grace. It's the culmination and climax of the blessings of redemption. I can't get my little mind around adoption. What a glorious, wonderful thing that is to be like Jesus and to be a co-heir with him. I, I, can't, I can't comprehend that. can't get, a, get my mind around that, to be placed as a son, uh, to have God as my father, to have the Lord Jesus Christ as my friend and brother, and then to be a co-heir with him. I'm not sure what all he's going to inherit, but I'm going to be a part of it. I, I, can't, I can't comprehend that. That's what Romans 8 is all about. It's not about being, being predestinated to salvation. And then uh, 9, chapter 9. How, how, four minutes? Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll try. Romans 9. Listen to how the Calvinists define Romans 9. It's called the front line of the defense of Calvinism. It's called the stronghold of reprobation. They find this doctrine there that God predestinates people to hell in Romans 9. By far the most quoted, debated text of, the, of them all with regard to Calvin's soteriology because it's the only passage that provides any semblance of a defense of predestination and reprobation. It's the most critical of all Calvinist proof texts. Now remember, nobody interpreted Paul's writings the way Calvin did until the 5th century. Calvin got all of his theology basically from Augustine. Calvin lived about a thousand years later. Calvin said, if I could write a book of my theology, I could write, I could write practically all of it out of the writings of Augustine. And uh, what he's, uh, what he's uh, so uh, nobody, nobody is going to interpret Paul's writings the way the Calvinists do until Augustine comes along. And he's not going to do that till after 412 A.D. For 300 years, nobody interpreted Paul's writings the way the Calvinists did. Isn't that strange? Why would God, God wait 300 years to give us these wonderful, wonderful five doctrines of grace? I'm looking at it now from the Calvinists. <laughs> but uh, real quickly, if you look at it, verses... Romans 9 and 10. Romans 9 and 10, by the way, is talking about, Romans chapter 9, is talking about God choosing Israel for a task. God is choosing Israel for the task of worldwide evangelism. Now, Israel's going to fail and fail miserably, is she not? <laughs> but look at verses, uh, come on down to verses 10 and 12 of chapter 9. Is not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good, e good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. And so here's where they're finding now where God is predestinating some to heaven, some to hell. If you read it carefully, the word of God is not teaching that at all. R.C. Sproul said chapter 9 is what converted him to Calvinism. A lot of other Calvinists said that chapter 9 converted them <laughs> to Calvin. And it, but it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. See, it's a call to service. Election means to be called to a service, to a task. And uh, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Over in Genesis 25, 23, we won't uh, turn there. But the word of God tells uh, Rachel that two nations are in your womb. Esau represents Edom, and Jacob represents Israel. And I hated, Jacob, I hated Esau, but I loved Jacob. 
That word hate, get any idea of emotion out of your mind. That word hate and choose, uh, hate and love means to be chosen for a task. It doesn't mean uh, that you literally have the emotion of contempt and hatred for someone. Uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't the word of God tell me that I'm, if I don't hate my mother and my children and my brother that uh, I can't serve God? Do you, do you think God really wants us to hate our mother, hold our mother in contempt? It's talking about uh, get rid of all emotions. Uh, there's no, no, no emotion in this. <laughs> this, is just the, this is the language that's used. We can go into the reasons why. But simply, to hate simply means I chose somebody else for the task rather than you. And so they, and then I, I, I love my mother, but I'm going to go to the mission field and, and do what God wants me to do. doesn't mean that I hate my mother. I've just chosen to serve God rather than stay home with my mother, I guess, to, the, to the, some to that effect. All right. And so it says, uh, I chose Esau for the task of world evangelism. I'm so, I so chose Jacob for the task of world evangelism as opposed to Esau. Now Esau will serve, Esau never, by the way, served uh, Jacob in his lifetime. The only time that Edom uh, served Israel was when David conquered Edom and for about uh, until the Babylonian captivity, Edom was under the authority of Israel. I think that's primarily a millennium statement that during the millennium, Edom, Esau will serve Israel during the millennium. But uh, there's nothing, has nothing to do with salvation. <laughs> it has to do with being called to a task. Then over in, uh, over in, Ephes uh, then, uh, over in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, is my four minutes up yet? <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Here's another stronghold of Calvinism. And I'll try to do this in maybe three minutes. <laughs> Ephesians. Now I'll go through this quickly. Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. In these first 10 verses, uh, Paul will use that phrase or its equivalent 10 times. So we're talking about what's happening in Christ. You're predestinated in Christ, not to Christ. You're predestinated to be like Jesus someday. You're predestinated to be glorified, to be just like the firstborn, Jesus. Grace be to you, and look down to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Where are these, uh, where's this predestination taking place? It's taking place up in heaven. He's talking to believers. And we're predestinated in Christ to some wonderful things. The most wonderful thing is our adoption. The apex of grace. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be saved. Is that what it says? Watch what we're predestinated to. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. Uh, see, this is another great passage on assurance. If you're saved, someday you're going to be glorified. You're going to be adopted. You may not be a very good Christian right now. But there'll be a day when you'll be glorified, you'll be like Jesus. Everybody. It's a great promise of salvation. It's a great promise that you can't lose. You can't, it's a guarantee of salvation. Look at verse 5. Having predestinated us unto salvation, adoption. What a wonderful, are, are you, do you know that you're saved? Have you got that settled? Nothing, nothing more important in one sense than having assurance of your salvation. Amen. Knowing you're saved, you're on your way to heaven. Having predestinated, uh, I, saw, I was reading in Cal, one of Calvin's commentaries, and he came. He was quoting uh, uh, chapter five or verse five. He said, "Having predestinated us," and then immediately went to salvation. Ephesians chapter one has nothing to do with salvation in one sense. It's a great chapter on assurance. One of the great tragedies is these Calvinists take these uh, assurance passages and convert them to salvation passages. That's exactly what they've done here to Ephesians chapter 1. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children of Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure. His good pleasure is in adopting, not sending somebody to hell. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of grace, 
wherein he hath abounded us towards all things. Now look at verse 13. I'll skip down. Here's the traitor in the citadel of the Calvinist citadel, the strong Calvinist stronghold. Verse 13. Look at Ephesians 13. In whom ye also trusted after that ye were elected, predestinated, right? In whom also ye trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. There's power in that gospel. The gospel awakens the old spiritual corpse. <laughs> the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye were predestined, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Is that what it says? After that ye believed, you were sealed. Verse 13 tells us that we're saved when we put our faith in Christ. Once we put our faith in Christ, then the Holy Spirit seals us. It's God's down payment. It's a guarantee that the full salvation will be delivered later. And our full salvation will come when our bodies are glorified at the rapture and we'll be like him. Oh, what a salvation. Amen. Amen. 